session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm very happy to be joined by a guest today who wrote the book of the week from a few weeks ago if you remember the book the end of trauma how the new science of resilience is changing how we think about ptsd let me introduce you before i bring him on the air to professor bonanno george a bonanno is a professor of psychology chair of the department of counseling and clinical psychology and director of the loss trauma and emotion lab at teachers college columbia university He is the author of The Other Side of Sadness and lives in New York and also, as I mentioned, wrote the book which recently came out, The End of Trauma. End of Trauma. Uh, Professor Bonanno, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you, Farid. Thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm very happy to talk with you. Well, I appreciate that and I uh, really appreciated reading this book because as I talked about when I discussed it on the show a few weeks ago, as a clinician... I obviously knew a lot about trauma and worked with many patients dealing with with trauma, but I realized there was a lot I did not know, and there was a lot of things that were essentially assumptions or biases that I think permeate the field and also general public that in your book you reveal the research doesn't quite point to that. So I'm really excited to get to hear your perspective on these different issues related to trauma, what it is. What is a typical response? What are ways that we think things will be, uh, how we tend to respond that might not be the case, and outlining all of that um, for us. Maybe to begin, you can uh, tell us a bit about the research you've done, because I know it's extended over decades, but trauma has been a a focus and also related to that resilience. Maybe you could tell us a bit about the, the research that you've seen, and then we could tie that into the book. Oh, sure. Uh, so I began, uh, oddly, or I don't, know, I don't know if it's odd, but um, I began doing this research on bereavement, on, mm-hmm. on how people cope with the death of a loved one. And um, that was a little bit accidental. Um, I wasn't planning to do that. And um, I came into that work for a little bit from left field and um, uh, without knowing much about it. And that re- really kind of allowed me to question a lot of the ongoing assumptions about loss, about how people dealt with loss. And a lot of it didn't make sense to me, to be honest, because uh, I felt like it was a little bit out of touch with the rest of psychology. And so I began to design studies. A lot of the work on on bereavement and on trauma at the same time, a lot of that work was focused primarily on on the clinical side of things, on extreme reactions, mm-hmm. on PTSD or uh, prolonged grief reactions, um, which, you know, is, is fine if, if that's the, you know, that was, that, that perspective brought us a lot of knowledge, but it's not the only way to think about such events. And um, when, what I set out to do initially was to just broaden the scope to try to investigate 
how people cope with these events, the death of a loved one or traumatic events, um, how, how most people cope with them. So mm-hmm. we tried to get, whereas most of the research and understanding at the time focused on people who developed extreme reactions, I wanted to understand how everybody dealt with these reactions. And that, there wasn't much research of that nature. So we you know, would recruit as many people as we could soon after an event happened, regardless of how they were doing. We just you know, wanted anybody who went through one of these events. And right from the beginning, we saw that most people coped quite well with these events. That mm-hmm. by, by quite well, I mean, you know, they, may, may have, they were upset by the event. They struggled a little bit in the first few days, first few weeks. But from that point on, they basically resumed their lives. It's not that they weren't affected by the event, but they were able to continue functioning and continue living their lives reasonably well with, you know, able to concentrate, have joy, you know, the things that we normally associate with mental health. Mm-hmm. And that we began to develop the idea that's what resilience is. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting to see that, as you mentioned, for me, as a clinician, you see people that are generally not coping so well with something. They're coming to treatment to deal with that. And so you associate, well, the tra- potentially traumatic or the traumatic type of event leads to this type of dysfunction or these symptoms. But we don't see all the people that might have gone through something similar but might be faring quite fine. And so I think that was the importance of the type of research you've done and others have done to look at everyone and how they react to something to see what percentage of people are doing well, how many people develop severe symptoms. And and you talk about three different types of trajectories that people tend to go through or that we can kind of split people up into. It's never going to be perfectly neat. Um, But maybe you could talk about that because I think that's another eye-opening stat for me was that the two-thirds of people being actually quite okay um, after a trauma or potential trauma. Yeah. Um, Just just before I do that, just to, to, to... a little bit the point you just sure. made so that um, clinicians and, and mental health researchers, basically mental health professionals, whether they be clinicians or researchers, and, and I, I don't mean to sound like I'm disparaging mental health professionals. <laughs> I myself am in the category of mental health professional. But when people see only um, extreme suffering, they tend to assume that that is kind of more normative than mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. I think there's actually a name for that. But I think it's a fallacy of the law of small numbers. Uh, something like that, and it's it's a it's basically a way we just norm the, our normal human minds function. We think what we're seeing is more representative of everybody else than it actually is. So, um, in, in response to your your question, though, um, when we began to track people over time, and you know this is difficult research to do. Mm-hmm. It requires a certain amount of money, and it re- requires being able to. Um, you know, obtain people into the research, recruit people into research pretty early on. And so there's a, there's a little bit of art to it that, you know, it took a while to learn how to do. And when we do that, <laughs> we track people over time, you know, so several years or longer after an event, we find that some people definitely show the trajectory of chronic, uh, chronically high symptom levels. And we just really call this chronic chronic symptoms, chronic PTSD symptoms, chronic depression symptoms, chronic grief symptoms, whatever we're measuring, sometimes all of those things. And those numbers are not too dissimilar from what we see with PTSD or other kinds of diagnoses, but I actually 
think they're better numbers. We, we tend to see a little bit less than you see with something like PTSD. And, you know, there's a little bit of a myth that PTSD is some immutable category that fell from the sky. And, in fact, it's, it's a human-made category, and it's not really even a very scientific category. It's a, it's, in fact, it's not a scientific category at all. It's, a, it's created by committees, and it's fraught with problems. So I feel, you know, it, it's political in some, to some extent, it's influenced by social trends, and it's influenced by whoever lo- argues the loudest in the committee meetings. Mm-hmm. So it, it's flawed in many ways. And the trajectories we, we identify, really, they're empirical trajectories. They're basically, are, um, uh, you know, they're not foolproof either. They have their limitations because it's done with computational modeling. But it, it's, it's a way we have extracting what the typical patterns are. And we sometimes see more than three. We sometimes see five, you know, depending on what kind of data we have. But the three most common are, one, this chronic trajectory, uh, which we see from anywhere from five to around 30%. And 30% is the most we've ever seen. Usually it's five or 10% after a highly aversive event, a potentially traumatic event will show chronic symptom levels over time. And then we see a trajectory of people who struggle with high levels of symptoms for a while, maybe a few months, maybe six months, and then they gradually uh, return to their normative levels over the next year or two. So that's a struggle. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a struggle for people. We call that the recovery trajectory. And then the, the third trajectory of the three that you, you asked about is the resilience trajectory, which is really, um, it's really a stable trajectory, stable trajectory of mental health, of good mental health. And that's probably a better way to describe it. Resilience is a handier word, but it's really a stable trajectory of good mental health. Um, and as I said, we sometimes see other patterns as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and that was, you know, you have some, charts in the the book showing how you know and your the overwhelming majority tend to have that resilience recovery uh and you know we're going to tie into this later about how this can affect how we even view it because one of the key themes that i found in the book was that flexibility uh, is um the the key when we're looking at resilience sometimes we're looking for a specific trait and uh, even going a step back, you talked about how resilience wasn't really studied or this term wasn't really out there. Then I feel like it kind of was out there and then it became everything and people were looking for yeah. these airtight ways of how to pin it down to being just a few things or this is the one thing that creates and guarantees resilience. But I, I really found what you describe as it's not about one thing, uh, but really flexibility is is the key there. And even related to that, I loved your discussion on how no trait or no coping mechanism is all good or all bad, uh, that really everything has pros and cons and can be beneficial in one area or one time and not in another, which also makes it so that we can't find these just fixed things that will always help us. We have to be ready to be flexible, which asks more of us. Absolutely, Farid. And in fact, um, I think there are a lot of myths about resilience, mm-hmm. and it's become a very popular term. So you often see articles in newspapers or even on websites or sometimes even in professional journals of the, the five traits of resilient people or the four traits or the three traits or the eight traits, um, the magic traits to have, and if you have these traits that you're resilient. 
but in fact that's that's just not accurate it's not mm-hmm. true and in fact i don't even think that people are resilient there aren't resilient people mm-hmm. and if there were then that would mean that other people are simply not resilient and that's neither of those things is true um what we find in fact when we look at um you know we so five traits are five traits make a person resilient no when we look at when we when we identify this resilience trajectory and then we measure the correlates of that resilience trajectory usually the you know right after the event we'll measure a lot of different factors and we will measure you know many different variables and sometimes we have as many as 50 or 60 variables mm. you know if we if we have data say we recently did a study in the emergency department at Bellevue Hospital uh, people who came in for a traumatic injury or a traumatic stressor and we had access to probably 80 different variables because um, 80 different characteristics because you know they have they routinely take blood samples in a hospital and blood samples allow you to measure stress and immune response and many other factors and so we had lots to work with and when we do that we often find that many of these things correlate with resilience mm. uh, you know and I would say there are probably 50 different things that correlate with resilience and if that's the case and nobody possibly could, first of all, nobody possibly could have all of those things. So that's got to mean they're different. People have different strengths and weaknesses um, in their, you know, in sort of their repertoire or in their, their behavioral profiles. But in fact, um, as you mentioned, when we actually look at these relationships, these variables, and try to predict who's going, there is really the million dollar question, who's going to be in this resilience trajectory? Right. If if on average it is about two thirds, on average around two thirds across studies show this resilience pattern. So two thirds of the people of the population, I just say, just you know, roughly, is likely to be resilient in the aftermath of an, a highly aversive, a potentially traumatic event. So if it's two thirds, it's one third will not show one of those resilient patterns. That means they'll still show one of the other patterns, which often is a little bit more painful. So how do we know who's going to be in that two-thirds? It turns out we can't predict very well. Even when we have, we can measure as many of these things as we can measure, we still can't predict very well who will be resilient. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because in statistical language, the effect sizes are small. But what this really means is that the actual impact of any of these, any factor on resilience overall is pretty small too. Um, and that's because, as you said, I think when you mentioned this earlier, that everything has got costs and benefits and nothing is always effective. Mm-hmm. And that's true all the time, but it's even more true uh, when we're confronted with a potentially traumatic event because they just vary so much. They're all different. The challenges are always different with, with these types of events. Right. Yeah, I think you called that. Uh, also, the, this difficulty in predicting, even though we see all these factors that are related to resilience, the resilience paradox that uh, it's hard to yeah. predict. Or and you you have a nice pie chart where it shows what what we think is like. Okay, all these things are related, so it fills the whole pie. But really, it really fills about half the pie, and there's a other half that's kind of unexpected or unexplained um, about what's going on. And we're actually at a, a commercial break, but I think after the break, it'll be great to 
dive even more into these issues of how we've measured trauma and trauma responses, but then also I definitely want to talk about this theme of flexibility and what you talk about are the, the flexibility mindset and the flexibility sequence that are critical in our response to trauma. Again, my guest today is Professor George Bonanno. Looking forward to continuing our discussion after the break. Welcome back again, my guest today, Professor George Bonanno. Let me bring him back on. Professor Bonanno, you're there? Yes, oh, I am. Great. So, um, you know, coming back to some of these themes of, of trauma and how it's been um, approached or our mindsets about it, something you talked about in the book was that after the 9-11 attacks, and you happened, I think, to sh just shortly before that have moved to New York or just for a few years, but there was this prediction by me many mental health professionals and government governmental officials that we're going to see this huge influx of individuals dealing with PTSD, especially in New York, but probably across the country. And that wave never really came. And so uh, you talked about it in the book, and I thought that was fascinating. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, uh, sure. In fact, that I recently wrote an article for one of the major newspapers around the anniversary of 9-11, um, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, um, that basically the, the, the title was the, how we have lear learned and relearned and continue to relearn this lesson because 9-11 um, taught us something, uh, but we don't seem to have remembered the lesson and we relearn it every time there's a new sort of major disaster, mm -hmm. national disaster, one that involves a lot of people. So what happened after 9-11 was that um, uh, you know people were very upset after 9/11 because nothing like this had ever happened before. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a scale, and you know, rightly so, it sort of changed uh, the course of history in a way, an unprecedented kind of danger, which led to you know all the things we now do routinely. You know, like um, you know these long lines to get on an airplane, and you know. Uh, in New York, you have to show your ID, you know, and you have to, anywhere you go, any tall building, you have to now, you know, pass security. And, you know, it's, a, it's you know, all these kind of things we never did before. Mm -hmm. And also it was just really frightening at the time. Um, and so surveys started going out, you know, survey instruments, survey companies started, sent, you know, polling people right away. We, a few days after 9-11, and I found that, you know, vast numbers of people were feeling distressed. And, you know, I thought at the time it'd be kind of, you know, this is a major event. It'd be kind of, the real question is, why aren't more people distressed? You know, mm -hmm. because, or why, what about people who aren't distressed? Because it was a distressing event. But that, you know, and, and soon afterwards, the studies began to appear reporting that people had trauma symptoms and, you know, lots of people, particularly in New York and that led to these pronouncements by the mental health community, which, you know, and, and I don't know how ubiquitous they were. Certainly there were plenty of mental health professionals saying that. And FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Organi Agency, you know, uh, earmarked over $100 million to New York City to provide free treatment to everybody because there's the anticipation that people are just going to be a mess. Everybody's going to need to be in treatment. And I think what, what we now know about that, or if, you know, if we can hold on to the lesson, is that it's quite natural in the advent of a very disturbing or, let's say, life-threatening event, it's quite natural for people to have what look like trauma symptoms. I call it traumatic stress. 
Um, it, and it's quite normative. It's quite natural, and I think it's actually adaptive. So we have int- what we call intrusive thoughts, you know, thoughts that, that um, or thoughts, images, memories of the event that pop into your mind when you don't want them to. Mm-hmm. You have nightmares sometimes, or people are in a kind of a state of uh, heightened arousal. They're on a, excuse me, I'm about to sneeze, <laughs> I didn't sneeze. Um, they're they're um, about you know they're they're anxious they're a little on edge and all of those reactions are quite natural in the aftermath of a life threatening event and I think they're adapted because they kind of prepare us you know when you you, ha- you keep thinking about an event when you don't want to or you have it pop in your mind or you have a nightmare about it it kind of makes you think about what actually happened and when you're feeling anxious. It keeps you on edge in case maybe it's going to happen again. Some events repeat themselves. Sometimes mm-hmm. the danger is still there. And those are quite natural reactions that we've probably evolved you know, over time in our ancestral past to help us better deal with these kind of things. And um, they, they, most of the time, these reactions actually dissipate. I'd say probably 85%, I'm just kind of guessing based on whatever studies, or whatever evidence we have, but 85% of the people, that's you know the vast majority, show these kind of reactions, and, it, and they go away for most people, within a couple of weeks at the most. And I think right now we're, so, we're kind of so preoccupied with the word trauma in our, in our cultures right now mm-hmm. that we all automatically jump to the conclusion that I must have PTSD. Yeah, uh, and and that that's really just a, a very that's very much a misunderstanding of what the what these processes are. Right. Yeah. There's going to be a a response after something major happens, but I think it also goes back to what you mentioned before of when we think of PTSD and then it becomes this immutable, real thing that you know came down from the sky and is so significant. Then we think. Well, if I'm feeling something, this is that PTSD. It kind of reminds me of when anytime people had a cough when COVID started, they thought for sure they had COVID. I actually had my own scare. Uh, But yeah, so, you know, it made us think, you know, so you think, okay, this is that. And that's why I think actually, and I I really want to bring this point home later when we talk about um, the flexibility mindset. But I think it's so important for people to be aware of this, that the you can, of course, develop these symptoms, but we should expect, and as you said, I think it is healthy. And I was in New York myself, uh, Not I don't live there, but on a trip with my brother and cousin, and we were fairly close to the Twin Towers. And I remember that night having very violent and you know, kind of aggressive, violent dreams, feeling tense and on edge for a while. Uh, I don't think I developed or maintained lingering symptoms to that, but I think it made sense. It would have been strange almost if I had a great night of sleep after something like that, you know. Uh, it makes sense for the, the body and brain to respond in certain ways, but then when we already pathologize it, this initial reaction, um, it can make it feel like something really horrible is around the corner or that we're going to keep feeling this way, when, as you're saying, most people will feel that way, but will feel better um, over time, the, you know, it'll start to yes. dissipate. Yes, and, and in fact, we, we've seen this, as I said, after most kind of shared, national shared disasters. Mm-hmm. And, and it just keeps repeating because we're, we're still, we get blinded by it. We get blinded by the fact that I think it gets magnified when many people have these feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people have these reactions. Um, because what uh, I don't think I finished quite ex- uh, telling you about 9/11. That so after um, you know the, the first month or so, there was lots of suggestion that, that everybody was traumatized. But then by the next time people surveyed 
the population, um, New Yorkers or the rest of the country, it was dramatically reduced and almost gone by six months. Mm-hmm. People were a little baffled by that. Yeah. But, and, you know, the free treatment, nobody wanted the free treatment in New York. And the initial reaction to that was, though, that we have all this money, so people ran advertisements in the subways, um, you know, say, that read something like, you know, it's okay to come to see treatment. They, there was assumption that it was people weren't coming because there was stigma. Mm-hmm. There was a stigma around it. So there was a kind of attempt to normalize it. And that didn't help because people didn't want it. Yeah. And I, I'm sure the stigma does still affect people seeking treatment, but not at the level that they were thinking was, you know, people were, were not getting help. And, you know, PTSD has a interesting history. Um, definitely, I think there's, you can see it throughout, you know, especially in wars, before they talk about being shell-shocked or different things. So it definitely has existed. I think there's something of a traumatic response. And as you're saying, these different trajectories has always existed and i think possibly because it was so under appreciated or under recognized that in some ways maybe we're going almost in the other way to some degree which i don't even think is all bad i think has some negative consequences in even our expectations of what's going to happen but when i even hear that story I'm, I, I know they definitely overestimated what would be needed but there is something at least nice of okay we're we're allocating even more resources than were needed for mental health where i think things like emotional responses to things tended to be swept under the rug completely. So there's some something nice in that as well. But I think the panic that it creates is the problem that I, I fear. Um, maybe that's kind of a funny way of saying it, panic about fear about panic. <laughs> but, you know, when you think of even the, the pandemic, and it's interesting, kind of you bookended that way, the beginning of the book, 9-11, you talk about. And then I, I'm assuming as you were writing this book, the pandemic um, happened because you talk about the, the pandemic and how there was a similar reaction of, uh-oh, we're going to see huge numbers of, you know, PTSD or mental health cases surge. And I think I've noticed there is heightened anxiety still, especially early in the pandemic. It had an impact, but probably not as catastrophic as was predicted by by many people. Um, Yes, you're exactly right. And I think um, literally we had the same, kind of the same course Mm -hmm. of events. First, there were the the, the, the predictions of a mental health crisis of, of um, unprecedented proportions. You know, there'll be suicides will be way up and people will be really depressed and anxious and they'll be traumatized. And none of those things have come to pass. Hmm. In fact, there was a, recently a study of 21 countries uh, across the globe where there were data available on suicides in the year before uh, the pandemic and since the pandemic, and in those 21 countries that were analyzed, there were either no difference or suicides were reduced wow. during the COVID crisis. Mm. The suicides did not go up or they went down. Uh, and all the mental health studies have suggested that, you know, some people were very distressed, uh, mm-hmm. undoubtedly, and some people suffered losses and, and were still dealing with this. Certainly the frontline medical providers have suffered a great deal during the Mm -hmm. pandemic because they've been overwhelmed in many cases and you know it's hard to do their job when they're dealing with people who didn't want to you know there's people who don't want to be vaccinated then they're in the hospital um dying and that's a really horrible thing to 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 participate in so Mm -hmm. those people of the frontline medical providers have suffered i think more than usual during the pandemic but for most people, 
It's not a matter of PTSD, certainly. For most people, PTSD is not an appropriate way to think about the pandemic at all because it's not really a traumatic stressor for, for the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. It's basically a chronic stress. I'd say a moderate, to mild to moderate chronic stress. And it's worn us out a little bit. It's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a lot, but that's just, that's different than a mental health crisis. Right. Yeah, I've seen effects like, especially with, I work with some teenagers, and one of the effects I've seen is a lot of kids that they didn't go to school for a year, and if they had oh, anxiety yeah. and then coming back to school, they've actually, although maybe they were even excited, a lot of kids, if they have anxiety, going back has been overwhelming. To You know, they got into this co- cocoon and comfort zone. And now they're trying to get back out and it could be overwhelming amongst a host of other things that were going on. But as you mentioned, this PTSD, and I think it also points to even as clinicians, we might be limited, but individuals in the general public, we just know a few terms or a few ways of looking at things. So we think, oh, this bad thing is happening. PTSD. That's the reaction that happens when a bad thing happens. And there's lots of other ways that we react to bad things happening. Uh, especially as you said, this is not in that same kind of class of what we'd usually think of as a traumatic or a potentially traumatic event. So there could be a lot of negative consequences, but jumping to the extremes that we tend to do, sometimes with a limited vocabulary or understanding of certain things, um, it, it could definitely paint a picture yeah. that isn't really close yeah, that's, to reality. that's a nice way to put it. That's a very nice way to think of it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so much more, obviously, to talk about. We were kind of painting the, the the picture of this background of trauma, trauma research, and the assumptions that are there. As I mentioned, I think, in the first segment, I, I really enjoyed learning about what you have found. It's not that there's these fixed traits, but really this theme of flexibility um, that can be very helpful in having people and or how they deal with trauma and what can lead to a better outcome. And then later also seeing, is this something that can be taught or learned? Because that is also going to be important for us to keep in mind that is it something that we can work on or is it something you either have or you don't have? Thankfully, the, 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 the research seems to point to it can be taught, but we'll get into those details uh, in these future segments. Again, my guest tonight, Professor, or today, Professor George Bonanno. We'll be right back. Welcome back again, my guest today, Professor George Bonanno. We are talking about his book, The End of Trauma. Professor Bonanno, you still there? I am indeed here. Wonderful. So we were, uh, you know, we've talked about uh, trauma, the responses of trauma, some of the misconceptions that we might have about how frequently or how likely it is that someone will have a really bad response to a potentially traumatic event. And then in talking about resilience, uh, you were discussing how it's not just some fixed traits that get us there. We haven't really been able to find a few that always are these five or however many that are always going to get you to a resilient type of a response. Um, and uh, you, you talk about this theme of flexibility that you think is really important. So I'll let you introduce that. And I know first we can get into what you call the flexibility mindset. But but let, let, let us know about what you've learned through your research that's led you to these types of conclusions. Sure. So um, it really, this, this happened in a kind of a, a surprising way for me. Um, you know, so... Uh, Harkening back to what we were discussing a, a, a little bit earlier in your show, that um, the the idea that these traits, the things that we can identify that predict resilience, the things that correlate with resilience, 
they don't actually predict resilience very mm -hmm. well. And so I was puzzled over that for a long time. But then, you know, at the same time, I thought, well, if, but most people are resilient, so how do they do it? Hmm. And that led me to realize, well, people must work this out somehow. There must be something, some process that people go through in order to get to that resilient outcome, because most people do it. So um, I, I looked into this more and more, and you know, I found this literature and this basically is a great deal of scholarship and literature and science across the animal kingdom. Researchers in studying, you know, single cell animals, single cell creatures, organisms to lots of different animals. See it throughout the animal kingdom, and then you see it in humans coping with uh, the way humans cope with things. There's always costs and benefits to everything. Literally everything in nature, including the way humans respond, has costs and benefits. Um, you know, what something is is really useful, but it always has a cost too, and that means if we we are in different situations, very greatly. So that must mean that in some situations something is going to work really well, but in other situations the cost is going to be more prevalent than the benefit, or it's just not going to work well. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be more and more true. And then when the closer I looked at the at the research, it seemed that you know even our favorite kind of coping mechanisms, they're not always useful in every situation, mm -hmm. and there are costs to them. And sometimes a situation using a certain coping mechanism, something you would think um, is always adaptive, like, say, reaching out to other people, so what we call social support, you know, reaching out to other people for, for uh, comfort or succor or, you know, any kind of help. And that seems like the go-to mechanism, really, the go-to behavior. But there are situations when it just doesn't help. And there are a number of those kind of situations. I tell a story in the book of a very pointed example for one guy that I was talking about in the book. Or something like positive emotions and laughter, which is very popular right now. Mm -hmm. um, but positive emotions uh, and you know, positive experiences, sometimes they're just actually not useful. Or even something like mindfulness, which is also very, very popular. The mindfulness isn't a panacea, and in some situations, it's actually maybe counterproductive. Hmm. So I, you know, the more I thought about that, the more I thought, well, people are working this out somehow because they, otherwise, they wouldn't be able to be resilient. And at the same time, I was doing research on flexibility, uh, in, the, in the completely independently, and I had one of those moments, like, of course, <laughs> why didn't I think of this before? Flexibility is how we do it. It's the same processes that I've been studying. And so because flexibility is not a simple, it's not a simple process, mm -hmm. it's, it's understandable, but it's got a few moving parts. So I've been spending some time developing what those parts are and how that works, and that's when I decided to write this book. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the first part, if I may, if I sure. could, uh, describe, so that was a bit of a preamble Farid, I hope that was okay. No, that was good. I think that set the, the, the context perfectly. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, so the flexibility, I, I, I define two parts, the flexibility mindset and the flexibility sequence. The mindset is really kind of a way of thinking. And I like to say it gets us into the game. It gets us focused on, on what's happened to us. And that's really, it, it's not necessary, but it actually really makes a big difference. It helps a lot. And, you know, these, these kind of things that happen, these, you know, potentially traumatic events, highly aversive events, 
We don't want to think about them. They're painful, they're unpleasant. We'd rather just tune them out and move on. But, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, they do intrude on in our awareness. They do hit, they do continue to disturb us. They, they make us sort of anxious. And we, so we really need to kind of look at them. And the flexibility mindset is kind of a, an attitude or a conviction, a way of thinking that, that helps us to do that. It's basically the conviction in a broad sense that we'll be able to do this. We'll, uh, you know, we'll do it. We'll get through this and it'll be okay. And, and that is, we've just, just, as we've understood it, broken it down into three pieces, optimism, confidence in coping, and a sense of, the, of turning threats into challenges. So optimism, everybody knows. It's, you know, the sense that the world is going to be okay. You know, it'll be okay. We'll get through this. You know, it, 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 things are always okay. I'll be fine eventually. Um, that sort of optimism, you know, I'm hurting right now, but I'll, it'll be okay in the future. Confidence in coping is what it sounds like. It's, you know, the sense of, I have some skills, I have some tools in my toolbox, you know, I, that I, I can use okay, pretty well. And then the challenge appraisal, challenge orientation is, uh, as I said, turning threats into challenges. But what essentially is, is, you know, when we're faced with a really bad outcome, a really bad event, Normally, it's it's very threatening. It's very unpleasant. It kind of stuns us, but eventually we shift. For many people, will shift into this, um, uh, into a, a challenge appraisal, challenge orientation, which basically says, "Okay, it happened, but what do I need to do here to get on with this?" You know, it's a, I like the example of a plumber. I live in an old building in New York, and things break every mm-hmm. once in a while. You know, the plumbing isn't working. The plumber comes up. And, you know, you start taking an old building apart and everything just crumbles, right? So the plumbers will come into my apartment and there's just a clogged drain. Next thing I know, the wall's broken open, the floor's broken open, you know, because things are just not, you know, old things, you know, get clogged, they, 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 they rust, whatever they do, and you have to go in there. And sometimes they see the plumbers shaking their head. You know, they can't just say, well, I can't deal with this and walk away. They have to kind of, you know, find a solution. So, you know, they're essentially going to a challenge appraisal. They say, okay, what do I need to do here to fix this? So these three things, optimism, confidence in coping, and challenge orientation, kind of, they, they work really well. They're not the only things they might do, but they work really well because they feed into each other. Yeah. You know, if you're optimistic, you're going to be more confident in coping. If you're confident in coping, you're going to be more likely to focus on the challenge you focus on the challenge you're going to be more optimistic you'll get through it you know you kind of narrowed it down to something you can do if you narrow it down to something you can do then you can also be more confident that the tools you have will get through and you know they kind of feed each other synergistically yeah yeah just to re- oh, sorry no sorry just go to ahead re- yeah to reiterate this point one one more time that i really think this is an important point that these three things that i mentioned seem to work really well but you know, not everybody has these pieces of the puzzle. You know, not everybody mm. feels like they're an optimistic person. And that's okay, because as long as you can reach that conviction somehow, you know, I'll work it out. I'll find a way. That's what's important is that conviction. And that's the flexibility mindset. It's a kind of a mindset to engage with the event. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the book, I know you you uh, write it as a three interrelated beliefs. And I was thinking about that even as you were talking about the, the willingness 
to think about the threat as a challenge. It's hard to think of a threat as a challenge if you don't expect that you can do something about it or that it could end well. You know, so you have to have at least yeah. some level of optimism to be able to see a threat as a challenge to almost maybe even get excited or in that way engaged with it, as you said, that I can tackle this thing. But if you have no hope of that happening, you're likely going to just see it as a threat that you can't overcome. So it, yeah. there is a and, synergy and there. Threats are Threats are very un- unpleasant, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know. And I mean, this this just this past summer, I I won't go into details about it, but I had a a pretty significant um, physiological problem this summer. Mm. It was a serious nerve problem in my face, and it was extremely painful. And it constricted even at one point even my ability to eat mm. or sometimes talk. And at oh. first, I was really upset by this and almost despondent because. You know, I thought, well, I'm a professor. I have to be able to talk. Mm. And, and, you know, eating, not eating, geez, that's really a tough one. I mean, I, I started making smoothies. And, you know, mm. smoothies are okay. But, you know. Once in a, a while, certain, yeah. <laughs> not once in o- a while. Not only, you, yeah. You have, yeah, you live on smoothies. It gets boring really quickly. So, um, you know, but then when I began to even use these same processes, you know, I, I, I know about these processes, and I began to, to break it down into problems I could deal with and pieces I could manage one piece at a time. And that has a kind of a, a remarkable sense of mastery that comes with that. You know, you think, mm-hmm. okay, you know, I can deal with this. And when you start thinking that, you start thinking you can, you know, you can deal with the whole thing. And threat, on the other hand, is kind of like focusing on the end point where you imagine how bad it's going to mm. be. And that's, I don't think that's actually really very helpful. You know, at some point we need to take an assessment of how serious a problem is. But if we stay focused on that, we only depress ourselves, I think, or we only make ourselves more anxious. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we start actually getting in there and and kind of embracing pieces of the problem, we begin to, to sense more clearly that it's manageable. Right. Yeah, sometimes I've, I've worked with families and trying to get a parent to see that if their child is so depressed that they don't think they can do something, it, it can seem so easy. Well, just, you know, study and you'll be fine. I'm like, you know, to your yeah. child right now, it might feel like you're saying, if I told you, oh, you know, there's this 10,000 pound ball outside. I just want you to push it a few feet. You know, <laughs> if you think it's really impossible, you're yeah. not even going to try to to do anything about it. You just let it be, yeah, this threat that's yeah. going to overcome you. So, yeah, that optimism can be important. I also think what was, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about what you went through and happy that you're you're doing better, it seems. Um, but hearing you describe yes. what you went through also, it's a reminder that even as we talk about these things, oh, use the flexibility mindset and, and all that doesn't mean that now when you go through this challenge, it's going to be beautiful and happy every day. You know, it's still really dark and painful at times, too. Even in this resilience, you can have have that or it is part of that usually. So uh, definitely don't want to give people the notion that if you use, you know, have these the flexibility mindset and use flexibility, it means that it's going to be easy or pleasant. It could still be very unpleasant, but that you will end up in a, in a better place or can recover from it more quickly or overall better. But it doesn't mean it's going to be easy by any means. Yes, very glad you mentioned that, Fareed. Yeah, definitely. And it's still work. You still have yes. to do it. And, it's, you know, in, in most, we're all very human. Mm-hmm. And we can, you know, painfully so sometimes, and we can, you know, we, 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 we do slip back and forth. You know, we do succumb from time to time to, you know, to even at the best of our efforts, 
into feeling despondent about something. But, you know, as long as we keep trudging forward, we, you know, yeah. we, we work it out. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I wanted to make that point also because I think, you know, there's this sometimes cliche of, oh, you know, someone went through cancer and they were happy every day of it or they were positive every day and so strong. And, and I think it's this idealized vision or we hope that it would be that way. But when you talk to real people going through the real thing, even if they did go through it and overall had a good outlook, they'll still talk about how they had some really crummy days where they maybe oh, thought yeah. of giving up, you know, or they, they didn't yeah, think they absolutely. could do it. So I think yeah. it's just good to be realistic about that, too, that um, this is just to make it easier, but doesn't mean by any means it will be easy. Yeah. 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 yeah so the, after the, the flexibility mindset, mm-hmm. basically what that does is, as I mentioned, it sort of gets us in the game. It gets us focused on, you know, kind of centered on the event is it something we're going to deal with rather than something that's that's haunting us, right? Mm-hmm. And once we do that, then we slide into almost naturally into what I call the flexibility sequence. And this is kind of the nuts and bolts of it. This is sort of the, you know, we, we deal with the event one step at a time, but this is how we do that, how we do, how we break, how we um, embrace the, the pieces of the event, the pieces of what we're feeling. And the flexibility mindset there's three steps. It's three steps, uh, three stages, whatever we want to call that. The first step is something I call context sensitivity. We mm-hmm. we basically read the challenges of the event. We, we, we ask ourselves, what is actually happening to me? Why am I feeling like I'm feeling? What is it that I need to do? And it, what we do is we basically read the, the situation. We, we could say we read the cues of the situation. What is actually going on here? You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm having these haunting thoughts or I'm, I'm feeling this way or I'm, you know, I'm unable to do this thing that I used to do. And we can begin to figure out, you know, what is it we can do to address that. And so we, we think of a strategy or a kind of behavior or a plan or something that we can do where we dip into these re- whatever we have available. And this takes us into the second step of the process where we ask ourselves not only what do I need to do, but what am I able to do? And in this case, we, we kind of take a stock of what are we, what do we actually have in our repertoire, in our toolbox? So maybe the situation suggests that we need to talk to people about this, but we're not very good at that. So, you know, that's not in our toolbox. So what else do we have, mm-hmm. you know, that we can do about it? Maybe we're, we're not good at, we're not good at talking with people. Are really good at the internet, so we can use the internet as a resource to, to find out information or, or to talk with people online. Maybe that's easier. Or maybe we need to be very, maybe in certain situations, the best thing to do is kind of spend some time alone and try to work it out. But we're not good with solitude, maybe. Mm-hmm. So then we have to find another behavior that might help us with that problem. Mm-hmm. And we choose the best thing that we have at our disposal that might address what we're struggling with. And when we do that, then we slide into the third stage, third step, which is we, is we call the feedback monitor. And we basically pay attention and ask ourselves, did this work? Is it working? Mm-hmm. And we have one of the best sources of feedback in the world, which is our own bodies. You know, mm-hmm. Our bodies will tell us when something's wrong, and they will also tell us when something is no longer wrong. You know, mm-hmm. And, and we, we have that source of feedback, we carry it around with us all the time. We don't often pay attention to it, but when we need to, it's there. We also can look at the world around us. You know, the other people sometimes will be a great source of information for us. 
you know, mm -hmm. we the other people will will ask you or tell you how you're doing, or you know, your loved ones or friends or associates, whatever. And we 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 you know, we're all fallible, so we don't necessarily solve a problem instantly and we need some feedback to determine if it either worked or didn't work and what else can we try mm -hmm. um, you know a good example i often use is a fear of flying many people have fear of flying it's not it's a it's a it's in part irrational because planes don't crash very often on the other hand there are these big things that are in the sky <laughs> and unless you are a physicist you don't quite know why they're in the sky anyway, right? So, you know, you're in an airplane and some people develop a, a fear or, you know, the sensitivity to turbulence and things like that, and they find it kind of petrifying. They're, they're very upset. But nonetheless, we, we fly all the time. It's a very big part of modern culture. So you, you, you have to deal with it. If, and very few people opt for never flying. Mm -hmm. um, but So many people fly along with that fear. And we're constantly trying to figure out ways to, and most people can relate to this, I think, we're constantly trying to figure out ways to solve that problem, ways to, to manage that fear. And most of us, and I had fear of flying at one point in my life, you try different things, try to see what works. And you'll find, well, something kind of works, but not kind of, I'm still kind of anxious, but you also get feedback from the people around you on the plane. About whether you know you feel like they're noticing your fear, your fear, or things like that, and um, you know, and eventually you might find something that does kind of help you with it. Um, and so we, you know, we might cycle through this many times right. in the course of a highly adverse event, because first of all, every event is different, so we have to kind of read the context and figure out what a, what a good, what a, a possible behavior might be to help us. And then we also have to, we, so we need to, 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 to do that. And then often for these events, they will continue for some time and they tend to change over time. What works today might not necessarily work tomorrow <laughs> and, and the next day because things change, events change and things change over time. And then, you know, we, we also might, you know, the next time uh, or the next uh, difficulty we have that's often a difficult event in the last one yeah. You know, I'm looking at the the time we're at another commercial break. I actually want to, you know, share some thoughts on this and get even more in depth of this flexibility sequence and uh, you know, how it works and really I think also we can extend this to recognize this is not just about only reactions to trauma. It could be something I think for everyday life of recognizing the challenges and just living life that these uh, this fle flexibility sequence can be quite helpful. So again, talking with Professor George Bonanno, his new book, The End of Trauma, is out now. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, my guest today, the author of The End of Trauma, Professor George Bonanno. Uh, George, you still there? Yes, I am. All right. So we were talking about, you were talking about the flexibility sequence, um, this these three things, context, sensitivity, repertoire, and then feedback monitoring um, that can help someone as they're working their way through, uh, you know, a, a trauma or potentially traumatic event or experience. And I think of it like walking a tightrope in a way. I've, I've used this analogy a lot about different things in our life that we have to balance. We sometimes want to think, always be this way or always be that way and almost always it's going to be some of both and figuring out the balance of the two rather than one or extreme or the other and so you can see that in this this sense first you have to 
get the context, know what's going on, what are you feeling. Based on that, look at what you can do. As you said, there could be many different coping skills or things people might suggest to you, but you have to see what works for you or what you can do. And then pay attention to the feedback monitoring of what's working and not working. And I think what could be tough is sometimes we'll do something and it's working and then we'll say, oh, wait, it's not working anymore. And we can feel like we're stuck or that means I can't do anything anymore. But it could just mean that now you need to do something else or that that thing you were doing is not needed anymore. And what's going to be needed is something else. And I think that's almost always the case dealing with trauma or just dealing with life that we, we have to keep these things in mind. Um, so I think it's these these things you've developed of the f flexibility sequence are not just a response to a potentially traumatic event, but can be really for just life in general. Yeah, in fact, uh, Fareed, um, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, in fact, when we developed these ideas in the first place, they were more for coping with daily life, the normal mm -hmm. stresses and mm -hmm. strains of daily life. In fact, you know, that life doesn't sit still for anybody. Yep. It's constantly changing uh, from moment to moment and day to day, hour to hour and day to day. Even in the course of our day, life, you know, we're different as we move along through the course of our day. We have circadian rhythms and, you know, differences in how we feel during the day. Um, and, in fact, the theories, you know, that there's coping and emotion regulation theory, and, you know, it was a big theory and research area in psychology, and that literature, interestingly enough, always has been about this sort of shifting, shifting situations mm. and how we fit with the shifting challenges of a daily life. And for some reason, we, we kind of lost sight of that, I think, a little bit. You know, and there are, there are some people who are, have a little bit more difficult time uh, with that, you know, that issue than others. But I think most people are reasonably able to, to manage it. And you know we and I think life is really one long series of problems to solve, you know, small to large problems. You know, and you know you there you know for example, I live in New York, you know you 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 have to get from point A to point B. Um the subways in New York are pretty good, pretty amazing in some ways, but they're also sometimes unreliable. You learn that the subway you're normally taking isn't running or there's some construction on the tracks, it's an old system. So you have to find an alternative route, and it's okay. You're going to take the next this new train, this new route, and it's 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 now a little bit later than it normally is, and it's very crowded, and it's kind of upsetting. Mm -hmm. There's a problem right there. You know, not only have the problem of finding an alternative route, but now you have a problem of you're somewhere and it's very upsetting, or somebody says something to you that is not quite what you expected, and maybe a little bit makes you uneasy. Or you know you you get some news you 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 pick up the mail and there's a there's a an unexpected uh, bad news or an unexpected bill or an unexpected something or other that you wish wasn't there or you know you have a financial thing that you wish wasn't there or, you know all these things make us feel certain ways. If you're a sports fan, mm -hmm. you know teams <laughs> teams win and they invariably lose you know and people get upset by that you know and all of these things cause different feelings in us um, mm -hmm. politics is the same way too you know things go the way you don't want them to go in politics especially now i mean you read the news right now it's but the news is basically keyed towards the negative oh yeah it's, mm -hmm. you know and so you, you hear some bad news that's upsetting and all these things cause emotional reactions in us or you know we have children children are are sources of great joy and also sources of difficulties and all these things we 
you know, we have these problems to solve. Yeah. You know that uh, the sports team one definitely hit home for me. I know I can definitely <laughs> get affected a lot at times by uh, when my, my team wins or loses. Um, and also the, the news thing, it reminded me of social media also when you say the negative. Uh, I always think it's interesting. If you put a, if you write a, a, a quote or you tweet and say, I, I found some good in this and also some bad, you're probably to get very little, you know, interaction and retweets. But if you put this was the worst thing ever and the stupidest thing of all time and evil, <laughs> you might, you know, go viral or have a, you yeah. know, so have it. So it's, it's unfortunate that I think the extremes get reinforced strongly when you look at things like social media. Yeah. Um, I think social media has a kind of a addictive quality oh, to yeah. it that, mm-hmm. that means that you're never quite satisfied with it yes. either. You post something and lots of people like it and you can get all juiced up by that. But then somebody will say something kind of mean or you post something you really like and nobody pays attention to it. You might feel, mm-hmm. you know, feel bad about that. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can you can not quite get the payoff you expected right. there and then have feelings. Yeah, I think it also. Yeah. So and that probably is related. I mean, these things are always complex, but dopamine is like a the, you know, neurotransmitter of, of getting to you to. Uh, anticipation of going towards something so yeah you're never quite satisfied and you're always going to be in that state of anticipation and, and it really never ends and that addictive side i've, I've bit fallen victim to it myself so uh, yep. I, I can relate to that um you know i know i'm only going to get to have you for this last segment so the few points i want us to touch on for sure one is well first all, i want to say one thing you know, i just as i mentioned kind of a recipe for life even when i as a therapist helping people context sensitivity being more self-aware what am i feeling what i'm going through and then with the challenges that are in your life what can you do what can you control uh, you know based on your repertoire and then we have to keep monitoring how we're feeling to see how things are going and mm-hmm. then the, the loop continues so i think it's just a a good general mindset to have or an, an action sequence for life um, to have these things and so related to that looking at can these things be taught because first of all when we i'm sure when you did this research people didn't tell you you know yeah i had this flexibility sequence that helped me get through this potentially traumatic event they were just doing these things you know without really awareness that they were following this kind of recipe so um can there be any element or what do you see as teaching this to others or people learning about it and then affecting how they then respond to things yes yes absolutely for and actually um one of the reasons that I got very interested in these dimensions when I began to research them, first of all, we did the research to just see if they, if they kind of what was there, and we began to see that there, there, there are these different components, and they're very much researchable, and we can we can identify them and 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 parse them apart and test them. Um, but then that led to, um, you know, this. This it led me to realize that you know these are also I think very learnable, very teachable. Resilience, you know, there's always been this um, this idea of training people to be more resilient, and I've always been frustrated by that because knowing that these whatever traits people were teaching really aren't likely to make people more resilient because they're only they only mm-hmm. I'm going to move the needle just a little bit even if we could teach them, but. The, the flexibility mindset is is really sort of teaching the process. I'm sorry, the flexibility mindset and sequence is kind of like teaching the process, the mm-hmm. way to utilize what we have to get us move down, moving down the road towards resilience. And it seems it's basic enough that I thought it was quite teachable. And it turns out when we've done the research to see uh, how people use all of these different components, it turns out that most people are at least moderately 
um, able to use all of these components. And some people are very good at them, uh, but most people are at least moderately able to, to use these components. So we know that people are doing this whether they know it or not. And even just simply um, ex- educating people about these components, I think, is a form of teaching that might help um, you know, people improve their lives. You know, and I think you know, it's really nice to, to reach out on your show and to tell people about these components. I think it would need a little bit more than that to actually, um, you know, I, sure. I go into this in detail in my book and I've begun to do some workshops and things, you know, and traveling around and talking about these things. And, um, you know, I will remain a researcher is what I, what I do best and what I like to do. But, you know, I think that just simply having people understand these events and how they can use them, these, these uh, mechanisms, how they can use them in their life, could go a long way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, in the book I talk, I, I have some uh, examples of self-talk, uh-huh. which is a way to sort of uh, capture these um, components in just simple phrases. Mm-hmm. We do this naturally anyway in our lives. There's this very big research on, uh, on self-talk. Sports, it's very popular in um, sports psychology. But it's a way of reminding us of what these components are and simply using them. And I found even as I was exploring that, you know, these ways we might use these in in kind of a pedagogical way, teaching them, I found it's very helpful in my own life even to do that, you know, to kind of run through the pieces. And so I think, uh, you know, I I have friends who are in the uh, the more more in the therapeutic realm than I am anymore. And um, they have been doing this with some of their patients and they've been working with people in very high stress situations and finding they can help them by teaching these components because there's a sort of immediate obvious sense to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's something I'm, I'm not doing that much of and it's not my thing. You know, I, I'm right now to, um, to be doing any kind of intervention work, but I think it's definitely there that it could be, these can be taught and, you know, in a, in a fairly simple way that people can use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think with a lot of them, it's about an awareness of understanding these, uh, you know, the the sequence and the, the mindset, and then the sequence can be very helpful. And you mentioned the self-talk, I, and I think, and you mentioned uh, Ethan Kroos, I, I discussed his book a couple months ago, Chatter, where he talks about, uh, you know, self-talk, yes. and I thought that was really interesting. And, and sometimes, it, you know, and anything we do has to resonate with us. So if it feels unnatural, um, you know, it doesn't quite work for you. But talking to yourself in third person, somebody's, you know, if you're talking to people about yourself in third person, that could be a little strange. I remember there was the, the whole Seinfeld about that. But if you, uh, <laughs> you know, when, you, when you're talking to yourself, and we, we do this, you know, probably, you've noticed, you know, like, okay, you know, all right, Fareed, you got to do this, but you're going to be all right. It just, it's, yeah. it's, we, a lot of people do it naturally. And I've, I've I've actually worked with clients and, and mentioned that, and they've meant they said that's helpful. It does create some of this distance between what you're going through, especially if you're experiencing something that can feel overwhelming. It could be nice. It's almost like you're an observer uh, of yourself, and that distance can actually make it a little bit. Again, it's not that it makes it easy, but it might make it more bearable um, to deal with whatever it is you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as we're concluding, I also wanted to make a point. We talked about this uh, off the air for a second that, you know, your book, I think, is very eye opening and recognizing how much we might exaggerate or uh, overestimate the prevalence of PTSD and these bad 
are poor responses to a traumatic event. But by no means it doesn't mean it's not a very real thing that people will have these very bad reactions to trauma. It's yeah. still going to be, you know, you said maybe 5% to 30% at the very highest, depending on what kinds of things we're talking about. So I just want to make that point because I wouldn't want anyone to take home the message that one, if you're experiencing a PTSD response to a traumatic event, it's very real. And I hope you will seek treatment for that because there are very real treatments that can help you. And that also someone would not tell someone else, well, then you didn't have trauma or you're exaggerating what you're going through because most people are okay. So you must be making this up. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. No, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought it up because I always like to to drive home that point as well. Um, And I think that, you know, you hear a lot about trauma these days. Mm -hmm. The word is used very loosely. People will talk about this kind of trauma and that kind of trauma, but they don't really mean the same thing as a sort of a, a, a bona fide traumatic experience. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think so when when somebody has gone through a potentially traumatic event and in and, and a month or so afterwards or longer, they develop a lot of the, the symptoms classically associated with PTSD, they definitely have then a serious psychological reaction. And it's, it's very painful. Mm-hmm. And over time it becomes even more painful because life, you know, Traumas, trauma reactions, depression, you know, any of those kind of things are pretty exhausting. And so people's lives get worse, kind of, they worsen around them, which makes it even harder. And I think those are very real reactions. Yeah. When I first began to, to work in clinical psychology, I worked with people with PTSD as for my clinical work. And, you know, I know that the, the intractability of it, at least the way it can seem that way. But as you said, there are genuinely good treatments available mm-hmm. um, they don't always work for everybody all the time but they're pretty good yeah. and you know I think that um, and it's a very serious thing and you know we don't we don't know exactly why some people get PTSD and some people don't we know a lot about we don't exactly know why even with, with people are resilient we have a pretty good idea how it works and how people can can um, how people manage to become resilient but for still for some people we don't know all the pieces. And so, you know, um, that people who, who develop genuine trauma reactions, if they have symptoms of PTSD, they're not, they're not faking it. Mm-hmm. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, deluding themselves. They definitely have a serious trauma reaction and they, they could benefit from help. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important to yeah make that point because uh, I, I think what also happens when we use you know, a lot of terms get used colloquially like, oh, I'm, I'm so OCD or, yeah, I'm having PTSD from this class I had or, you know, whatever it might be, people can um, then it takes away from people that are genuinely suffering, unfortunately, yes. that we yes. think everyone is kind of oh, exaggerating or making it up. But it's a very real thing. Uh, but coming back, you know, just to tie things up, your book, I think, does a great job of painting the full, fuller and more realistic picture uh, showing these myths and misconceptions that we might have, we tend to over-exaggerate it. And I also think, you know, that first part of the flexibility mindset, which is optimism, I think your research in this book actually contributes to that by having people recognize, okay, you're more than likely going to be okay. You know, it's going to be tough after any kind of a painful event, but you're more than likely to be okay. I think that itself could even make it easier to hold on to a sense of optimism uh, about what, what you'll go through. Yes, and it's it's really important to 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 know. There's a section of the book I, I talk about the resilience blind spot. Mm-hmm. But when we when we first experience something highly aversive, and we feel lots of distress and 
you know, these emotions. I've kind of said this before, but it, I want to say it now slightly differently, that we tend to think this will never end. Mm-hmm. I'm going to feel this much pain constantly. And, and you know, it's, it's not easy for someone to say, well, you'll, you'll get over it. That's a very <laughs> um, unwelcome thing yeah. for anyone to hear from another person. But the, 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 the truth is that if, if we embrace the event, and you know we 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 kind of dive in there and 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 do the, go through these steps that I, I our research suggests are what people do and the, the flexibility sequence and we you know we we allow ourselves to think I can get through this and I can get through this is different than you'll be okay right <laughs> you know that's a, it's not dismissive it's really like I can get through this I'll do what I need to do. And that's a little bit of a different story. That's that means I'll do the work right. that I need to. And even if it hurts, if we if we take that frame, it does it does uh, sort of pave the way for us to get through it. Yes, uh, yeah, I think. And you mentioned a few points about how uh, I think it's important that it comes from the individual. You know what they're they're going through. We don't want to invalidate because I was thinking about that earlier about the flexibility mindset. And you know, if someone goes through something really hard, and you say, "Oh, you're so lucky to have this challenge." You know, it's not usually doesn't feel very good to them unless yes, you first recognize yeah. you acknowledge their pain and what they're going through is, is difficult, and then they have to see it as a challenge. But for you to tell them, you know, they're they're lucky to have a challenge. Uh, it, it obviously will come off a, a certain way. But uh, you know, I do want to wrap things up. I appreciate you giving you know, me and my, my listeners so much of your time and also appreciate the research and this great book. I hope people will pick it up if they haven't. The End of Trauma. Uh, Professor Bonanno, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, sorry. It was my absolute pleasure. Oh. It was really great to talk with you. Same here. Thank you so much. Look forward to uh, seeing your future work and being in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All right. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, a big thank you to my guest today, the author of the book, The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing, How We Think About PTSD, Professor George Bonanno. I was very happy to have him on the show. I I really enjoyed his book when I read it a few weeks ago or about a couple months ago now and was happy to have him to discuss his book in more detail. And I hope you will check it out. And as we were talking about things about flexibility, this theme that comes up a lot in the book. And I mentioned that his flexibility sequence, context sensitivity, repertoire, and that feedback monitoring, um, to me, it really is a good recipe for life in general that we always want to be aware when you talk about context sensitivity, that's self-awareness. What am I feeling? What am I going through? What's going on? What's the problem or challenge I have at hand? Then based on that, looking at what can I do? And as he was discussing, there's lots of different things that can help and work, but you also also look at one, what is at your disposable disposal or available to you, but also what works for you and what are you good at? Because different things might work for different people because they have strengths, or let's say you don't have any loved ones around at that time. So you can't say, I'm going to go see a loved one or a close friend. We have to see what really we have. And then the last piece, feedback monitoring. We don't know exactly the result we're going to get. We choose what we think is the best thing we can do, the best course of action, but we won't know. And then we pay attention to how we're doing. How is it affecting us? As you said, our bodies can be very great feedback of that. You just kind of can feel better or worse or feel like there's some sense of relief and you don't feel that negative feeling anymore. And that'll be telling you something. But then the loop continues. 
And so I think this is true, not just when we're talking about trauma, not when we're just talking about general things, or I guess it is in a sense a general thing. In all aspects of life, we tend to look for an easy, clear cut, cookie cutter type of a solution. So if you want your relationship to be good, if you do these things like this, it'll always be good. Or spend six hours a day talking in this way, two hours doing that. And we're looking for these formulas or very clear recipes to deal with life because that makes it a lot simpler. We won't really have to think too much. We won't have to wonder or worry if we're doing it right or wrong. Someone just tells us it's right and we follow that. And I see this a lot in uh, some self-help books. I obviously read a lot of books, including self-help books, so I like a lot of them. But sometimes you see this type of theme, whether it's in self-help books or people online, Instagram, different social media, trying to promote certain things where they really try to simplify something. Now, there's great value in simplification. Uh, part of even research and what people are doing is trying to simplify all this noise into something very meaningful that we can understand. So they, they try to simplify some things. However, lots of things in life and how we approach life can't just be simplified or distilled into a this always works type of thing. Not only can we say this always works, we can't say this always works for everyone and then also even for that person something might work at some point that doesn't work at another point or for another type of an issue so we, we might have to accept this reality that life is complicated and complex that there aren't going to be clear-cut recipes for almost any aspect of life but going back to some of the themes in this book that we can have that optimism in ourselves and that things can get better uh, and our confidence and the ability to cope. This is part of the flexibility mindset. And then a willingness to look at life even, not just maybe a specific challenge uh, or, th or specific threat, but life in general is this challenge that we get to deal with and overcome and engage with. No person can tell you exactly how to live your life. And so I can be aware of that as I'm talking that I'm giving this advice about how to live life. But I think it's important to be aware that it's more about trying to understand how to engage or respond to life rather than someone can tell you you're going to do this. So if you're telling me I need to walk to the corner store, I can give you some ideas of how to get yourself going, but I can't tell you these are the exact steps your feet are going to have to take. I'm going to have to, and you're going to have to trust that you will figure it out as you are on your way there. And each step you get to, you'll figure it out. And saying that reminds me of certain challenges in my own life or one that really rings true with this theme is when I was in graduate school and had to do my dissertation. And I remember that one of the professors to try to make the path clearer for us, and it really was a gift, had created this document. It was several pages long, essentially of every step of the way from getting started to, you know, preliminary things you had to do before you could even get started with the, the project to do your dissertation, all the way to the very last thing of getting signatures on a page, publishing it to the library, whatever it is we had to do, literally every step. And it was really kind of them to, to outline it in this way so we can see all the steps and make sure you don't miss anything. But I remember when I first got that packet, and it really was a packet of pages, it just scared me. And I felt, you know, almost... Uh, I definitely, as I said, I don't want to use it in a minimizing way, a traumatic experience, but it was a panic of, can, can I do this? There's no way I can do these hundreds of things, of these each little step. 
And not only that, I would look at things on near the end and I couldn't even understand what it was I had to do. So I was like, how am I going to be able to do something I don't even know what it is? Like, I don't know, uh, analyze, reanalyze the data that I did. I don't even know what it was, but something that I couldn't quite get because I didn't have the knowledge or the experience to know what it was. And I remember freaking out and just really getting panicked. And it wasn't until I talked to some people and slowly was able to calm down that it brought to my attention this idea that the way we go through life, you can't think of how am I going to take every step before I get there. It's like you're looking at a staircase and it's 100 steps and you can't look at step 62 and think, okay, how am I going to lift my foot there when I'm over there? You have to figure out that I'm going to do that when I get there. And right now I need to focus on this next step that's right in front of me because that's all I can do is take this first step and trust that when I get to step 62 or whatever it was that I said, I'll be able to handle that step too and I'll learn what to do there. And that's exactly what happened with my dissertation. It was still very, very challenging and hard and lots of stress and I did have moments where I almost gave up or maybe thought I couldn't do it or what if I can't do it, but I just had to do the step that was in front of me and I kept taking the step that was in front of me until I did get to the end and it was quite a wonderful feeling. But if I tried to do all the steps at once, there was no way to do it. Or if I thought there was going to be some easy way to get through this whole process, uh, that wasn't going to happen either. It was challenging, but I had to keep myself in that flexibility mindset. Again, I didn't term it that back then. Of I'm going to just keep going. I believe I can do it. I remember even I would see people who are graduating. I'm like, okay, it actually happens. You know, people finish this thing called a dissertation and get done with school. It's a real thing. So that gave me some of that optimism that this can get done and it, it can happen. And the confidence would wane. Sometimes I wouldn't think I can do it. What if I can't? But you'd get encouragement and support from colleagues and classmates and uh, professors that would give you that belief that I can uh, cope with this or have the, the skills to get this done. And I think I did at times definitely felt like a threat sometimes, but also see it as a challenge and one, one to overcome. And when it finally happened, um, it, it did feel great. But thinking about this made me reflect on my experience there in grad school and how there was no way to make it easy. It was still very difficult, but it needed me to be aware that if I try to figure it all out at once, I'm just going to give up. I'm going to only see it as a threat that I can't overcome. But seeing that I'm only going to take each step as it's in front of me, one step at a time, that's really the only way that anything gets done. And really then we can extend that to that's what life is. It's just these series of experiences we have where we have to see what we're doing, what we're going through, and then decide what can I do now or what would I like to do now. Uh, so I like that, you know, one of these the big take homes from this book was that there isn't just these things that are resilient, that make you resilient and no matter what always work. It's about being flexible and recognizing it's not going to be one thing for everyone. And even for you, it's not going to be one thing that will get you out of whatever it is that you are dealing with. Let's go to our last commercial break. Uh, this, the lines are open 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to end the show today talking about the reality of emotional pain and mental illness and the things that we go through. Because I was happy that we got to touch on that at the end with uh, Professor Bonanno when we talked about how 
PTSD is still real, or, well, PTSD as a diagnosis, as he discussed, has its own history that um, he talks about in the book. But as far as having a chronically bad or chronically difficult reaction to a traumatic event is a very real thing. And sometimes 5% to 20, 30% of individuals, depending on what type of events we're talking about, will have this experience. And so I think it's important on one hand, when we're looking at the reality of a situation, we have to, of course, see all sides of it. And so in this book, it does talk about both sides and especially highlight some of these misconceptions we have that make us overestimate the likelihood that someone will have a PTSD-like response to a potentially traumatic event, where it seems we do overestimate it and not recognize that two-thirds of people at least tend to actually respond quite well. But I want to make sure we also recognize that that means a third of people don't respond so well, and some maybe smaller percentage of that really will respond poorly and go through something very difficult. Because one of the things I try to promote on this show is, first of all, just mental health awareness, mental illness awareness, to destigmatize those things, and also to destigmatize reaching out for help and seeing a mental health professional. I think that's actually something uh, quite wonderful. I was actually at a, a comedy show last night, and one of the comedians, he said he was English. Actually, if you watch Ted Lasso, uh, Roy Kent, uh, it was actually really cool to see him. But anyway, he was talking about how uh, he's going to therapy, and I thought that's cool. And you, actually, several of the, therapy, uh, the comedians uh, mentioned going to, to therapy or taking medication and, and dealing with mental health issues. But um, he was saying that he goes to therapy, and he said, here, that's not a big deal. But in England, where I, where, I'm com- where I come from, that would be a big deal to acknowledge that, or people would respond quite negatively or maybe say, like, call the police if you, if you said something like that. But anyway, uh, I try to destigmatize that because there is still a big stigma towards getting help. And so I shouldn't need help uh, in many cultures, including Iranian culture. It means you're crazy or something's really wrong with you. For lots of people, including men, there could be a tendency to see it as weak. And so I always want to make sure I, I emphasize the significance of what we go through and that seeking out help is actually a very good thing. And although some people can think it's weak, seeking out help can be the strongest thing that you do. It actually requires a certain vulnerability and acknowledgement to recognize that I'd like to get some help to, to help me with what I'm dealing with. And it's nothing to be ashamed of, and I hope something that people can be more and more proud of, of seeking that help. And so coming back to this topic, when it comes to trauma, no one can tell you what you are going through. And that's something we should keep in mind. No one can uh, tell you what you're going through and keep that in mind about telling other people what they're going through. Um, You see this a lot, especially in uh, the media. You can get a lot of attention talking about, well, this person is faking it and this person is exaggerating it. We've seen it with um, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka when they were pulling out of events or not doing certain events and talking about their mental health. Uh, I won't name names, but many people were saying, oh, they're faking it or they're exaggerating it just to get attention. They're just, you know, they're okay. And they're not, and then also saying they're not tough or they don't have the toughness it takes to, to excel. Um, which I think anytime you're telling someone in a different field or area of uh, expertise or area of uh, doing some kind of work or doing something that 
they're not cut out to do it when you're not in it, I think that's always a problem. But really just telling anyone else what they're going through, I have, I take issue with. Because myself as a clinical psychologist, someone who's worked with many people over the years, I would never claim to be able to tell you definitively someone is faking it or someone really is dealing with something. Uh, can we get duped? Can people fool us? Of course, that's just part of being human, part of uh, human experience and interactions as you can't always know what people are doing. Someone asks you for help. Could they be lying and they don't need help? Could they be uh, exaggerating? Could they be trying to manipulate you in some way? It's all possible. I always think it's better to have the mindset that I'm going to trust people most of the time, or at least that's the starting point until they prove otherwise. I think that's the healthier and better way to live life. Um, but if we think we're going to catch everyone every time, you're going to have to probably live a very paranoid type of life and a very suspicious type of a life. So to me, if someone says they're dealing with some mental health issue or they're doing something for their mental health, I think I respect that as that's what they are going through and that's what they think is the best way to deal with that. I'm not someone who can tell them that that's not happening. But especially when people say someone's faking it, that does bother me because um, this does contribute further to the stigmatization and then this uh, type of, if you want to call it victim blaming or just someone who's suffering to blame them for what they're going through. And then it makes it harder for other people to share what they're going through if they have a mental health struggle because like, oh, what if people think I'm faking? I, I've seen how people reacted to so-and-so sharing their own mental health struggles. Maybe I should continue to hide it or fake that I'm okay because I don't want to experience that type of a backlash. And I think that's horrible. So can I know what Simone Biles was going through? Of course not. No one can know except for Simone Biles. And if she made the decisions that she made, all we can do is try to accept them and respect them and deal with them. But to tell her she felt this way or didn't feel that way or she should have competed anyway, uh, I think is really just missing the mark of how we need to treat one another and really appreciate what others are going through. I can never know uh, what you're going through. And this is even something I remember in a graduate school. This is a second anecdote from graduate school I'm sharing. Uh, but one of my professors, we were doing some mock therapy and uh, he was telling us about, okay, we're going to try to show empathy. It was like this first or second year class we hadn't seen clients ourselves showing empathy. And one of my good friends, it was actually his birthday a couple of days ago, Scott Rauer, Dr. Scott Rauer. He, I think he'd said, I understand to the client as soon as they'd said something. And it was interesting because the professor was trying to show us that, well, when you say I understand, it's a kind of a tricky thing or a risky thing because, of course, we want to show and we really genuinely want to, but we want them to feel that we understand them. Feeling understood is so important. But at the same time, when we say I understand, depending on how it's said, how it comes off, you know, when you say it in the course of someone sharing something, it could also sound like you're undermining what they're going through or claiming that you know their experience when really we have to recognize we can't quite know. So in a way, he was trying to tell Scott, there's a way you want to try to convey that I'm understanding you, but you also don't want to just plainly say I understand as in I understand completely I know what you're going through. Because you can think about it, if I'm sharing what I'm experiencing and I've told you for a few seconds and they say, oh, I already know exactly what that's like. Yeah, you're sad about this and this and this and this and this. Well, I'm going to feel like, well, you haven't even heard me yet. 
to understand. So genuinely to, to feel like you're being understood, you have to recognize the person is making an effort to understand you better, to get to that core of, of what's going on. But I do think there is this type of humility that can be important for us to keep in mind that even if we think we're understanding someone, it doesn't mean we completely understand or know what they are going through. So even people that maybe have gone through something similar, oh, we've both had, you know, a, a loved one who's died recently. We both had this. It can be helpful. You can think that person might understand me better, but everyone's experience will still be unique. So it'd be tough for them to say, I know exactly what you're going through. It's the same thing I'm going through because that's not the case. We can't be sure of that. So it's important to recognize that as much as we might think we know or, oh, I can tell this person is not that depressed or not that this, we don't know. And I hear this a lot with uh, families. They'll say, well, you know, my son or my daughter is saying they're depressed or anxious, but I think they're exaggerating it. And often it's because they don't want to face the problem. So there's some level of denial or they, uh, you know, it's hard for them to handle it being real. I don't want my son to be depressed. So no, no, it's just, uh, he's going through a phase or he's sad or he's being dramatic in some way, but it's not real. But unfortunately, when we approach it this way, people suffer in silence. They're more likely to now not share with you what they're going through and you could prevent them from getting the help that they need, especially if you're a parent where you might be the resource necessary for them to get some kind of professional help. So this is why I thought it was important in talking about this book when we see that, wow, so many people actually won't have a traumatic response or will respond quite well. It still means that many people still do have a very negative response to going through a traumatic experience or potentially traumatic experience that can be long lasting. And those symptoms are very, very real and very, very painful and require support and care and whatever else it can be. And to hopefully in these last few minutes, get you to recognize for all of us to recognize that life is tough. People are suffering in different ways. We all go through different battles and, and challenges. And so I hope we can see that common humanity and recognize this is part of being human and the human experience is that things are tough at times. We have different challenges. And just like no one has perfect physical health, if you go to a doctor, they'll tell you something. They look at your blood work and something is kind of high, something is low. You have certain aches. This is even in a very healthy person. You'll have at minimum some things going on. No one has perfect physical health. And similarly, no one has perfect mental health. We all have some things we're dealing with. And even if it's not something chronic, we'll have different challenges or things that come up here and there. And I would always hope we can move towards more of a acceptance and empathy and understanding of that. Both it'll help us be more compassionate towards ourselves that, that I'm going through things because I'm a human being and I go through something just like everyone else does. And then also it allows us to be more compassionate for others as well. It can definitely be a type of a, a two-way street. I'd highly recommend the work of Kristen Neff on self-compassion. And one of the components that she talks about actually is common humanity that, you know, let's say oh, I made a mistake, but you know, people make mistakes. That makes me like everyone else. There's a way it connects us to everyone. Um, so I'm going through something emotionally. That's part of being human. And this is why actually sometimes, you know, someone has anxiety, then you'll say, well, you know, this many million Americans deal with anxiety. There's something comforting about that. 
It's not just me that's messed up or crazy or weird or has this way of thinking about things that's really wrong. It's, it's quite common. It's part of being human, and many people go through that. So I hope you'll take that message home and be kinder to yourself with whatever it is that you suffer with, struggle through, because we all have those kinds of things that we're going to be dealing with in life, whether it's all the time, some of the time, or it's some part of our life. And then also have that care and compassion for others and have the initial starting point that if you're telling me you're in pain, your pain is real. I'm not going to say it's fake, exaggerated, or that you're using it to get attention. Have the starting point that I'm going to take you at your word. And I can't say I fully understand you, but I want to understand your pain better. I want to understand what you're going through more rather than deny it or diminish it or invalidate it in some kind of a way. So that brings us to the end of today's show. Again, a very big thank you to professor and author of the book, The End of Trauma, Professor George A. Bonanno. I hope you will check out the book if you have not already. I appreciate him joining me on the show and giving us his time today. And also, as always, a big thank you to Ghazale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful day. (music) 